listen to Even the Trotchable, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even the Even Trotchable. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started off with the books that we read as kids. But if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchablePod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. Good afternoon, listeners! Or good night or good morning, depending on when you're listening. That's kind of what this episode is about, right? Yes, right. So our books today are all about time. So our picture book is Clocks and More Clocks by Pat Hutchins. And our chapter book has been suggested by a listener called Fiona. So it was really, really great to have a listener suggestion. She sent us a lovely email as well. Yeah. Be more like Fiona. Request your favourite books from us. We'll definitely do them. Um, So we have Momo by Michael End. Or Michael Ender. Sure. Who is more famous for the never-ending story. But actually, Momo is Germany's highest-rated children's book on Goodreads. Absolutely a new favourite. Yeah, really good. And we wouldn't have... I don't think we'd have come across it without Fiona. No. But first, our picture book. Clocks and More Clocks by Pat Hutchins. You might be familiar with Pat Hutchins from her most famous book, which is Rosie's Walk. Did you watch Rosie and Jim? Aye, yes. She presented Rosie and Jim for a while. Ah, okay. She's loopy Right. Ah, lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's who she is. She's this um, uh, giant of picture books. This is not one of her most famous ones. (laughs) We've picked this one because it's on theme. It's about a man called Mr Higgins. And Mr. Higgins lives in a house that looks a bit like the house of Rookhaven on the cover of the Rookhaven books. It's this three-story, dollhouse-looking thing. And he's in his attic, and he discovers a lovely old grandfather clock. And it looks great. And so he's like, cool, but how do I know that it's telling the right time? So he walks into town, and he buys a clock. And he puts the clock in his bedroom and the clock says three o'clock so he runs up the ladder to the attic but the grandfather clock says 301 he's like oh no which one's right better buy another clock so he walks into town (laughs) gets another clock puts it in the kitchen on the ground floor and that says 10 minutes to four and he's like right runs all the way up to the attic and the grandfather clock says eight minutes to four he runs down back to his bedroom and the clock says seven minutes to four. And he's like, oh no, I still don't know which one's right. So he goes to the clockmaker and the clockmaker's like, mm, let me help you. So the clockmaker comes home with him and the clockmaker has a wonderful pocket watch. It's wonderful because it fits in your hand and you can carry it with you. And so with the pocket watch, he goes into the kitchen, he checks the pocket watch against the kitchen clock he says, there's nothing wrong with this kitchen clock. And then he goes to the bedroom, he checks it against the bedroom clock, and Mr. Higgins is like, but look, it's not telling the same time. As the one downstairs was. As the one downstairs was. Yeah. He's like, no, but it's okay. And he shows him the 
watch and the watch is also telling that new one minute later time um, yeah. and then they go up to the <laughs> attic and he's like oh look at this one this one says it's two minutes later than the one downstairs said and uh clockmaker's like oh it's fine look my my watch also agrees and so <laughs> mr higgins decides that his original strategy of buying more clocks is the correct one and he buys a pocket watch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and from then on all of the clocks in mr higgins's house were always correct the end i love this book i love this book so much i didn't get the joke at first and i still loved it because it's this bizarre kind of tousle haired gentleman filling his house up with clocks <laughs> this guy's a character, right? <laughs> he has some weird compulsive need for clocks on every floor. And yeah, I didn't get it. It wasn't until about halfway through, I was like, oh, that's so stupid. That's such a, that's such a wonderfully stupid joke. It's great. And then I was waiting for, hoping it didn't come, but waiting for the bit where it's all spelled out because it's a kid's book. And it yeah. says, oh, and it turns out all along that, it had taken him a minute to get upstairs, but it doesn't do that. No, it doesn't do that at I all. Really it holds, like it it holds firm to it, so it gives space for the kid to figure the joke out. Yeah, and then the punchline's amazing. It's great. It's such a good joke. So he goes, "I know what I need. I need one of those magic pocket watches that makes all my <laughs> clocks right." <laughs> it's lovely. Such yeah. a stupid, stupid book. It's brilliant. It's my favorite kind of kids' book. This is a new favorite. Like, up there with, like, Not Now Bernard for that just sort of, like, consistent internal logic yeah. <laughs> that applies only to itself. It's great. Like, it plays as a joke. Like, after reading yeah. this, like, I've told it to my housemate just, like, as a joke, and it's it's fab. So the illustration style is very much Pat Hutchins's illustration style. That's bizarre. It's very I strange. really like it. It's very 60s. Yeah, 60s is right. 60s, yeah. 60s edging into 70s where everything is orange and brown. Yeah. Or somewhere between the two. <laughs> I don't, Mr. Higgins is wearing like a tailcoat, roughly bow tie and spats. What an odd gentleman. I've got a pair of shoes like this that like even I think twice about wearing these shoes, right? They're these like mustard yellow, too small for his own feet, little like winkle picker yeah. type deals. <laughs> And then orange checkered trousers, and then a bald, like a sort of Bill Bailey esque, bald with long hair, ginger yeah. fuzz. Yeah, and he's fat. Yeah, yeah, he's a rotund gentleman. Undeniably fat, and the book says nothing about it, which I really like. And I feel like you get that kind of incidental fatness even less now than you did then. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can see that. Yeah, definitely. You also don't get incidental baldness either. I feel like everybody yeah. in kids' books now is like conventionally hot. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other one I loved about this is that I had to double check the Mister because I like visually instantly read it as a middle-aged woman. That's interesting. And then went, oh right, yeah, no, no, okay, this is a Mister. He's he's very appealing. He looks like the sort of person that would fill his house with lots of clocks <laughs> and spend all of his time buying clocks. <laughs> There's this great picture when one of the times that he goes upstairs and finds the grandfather clock 
not showing the time that he expects it to show. He sort of falls over forward with his <laughs> bum facing out of the picture. He's like so surprised. <laughs> like, what? Seven minutes to four? That can't be right. <laughs> I know. I love imagining the interaction with the watchmaker. And yeah. like, and I can imagine as the watchmaker being like, that's so weird. Let's have a look at this. And then getting there and being like, oh my God, right, okay. I see what's <laughs> happened here. Like, it's either that or the watchmakers try to explain it. Like, yeah, so I've got all these clocks in my house and they're all different times on different floors. And he's gone, yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I mean, what's happening there is like, time exists. It takes time for you to climb a ladder. And the, this guy's gone, no, 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 you don't get it. They're different times. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, what I'm saying is, no, 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 I don't think... Cool, let me come round and I'll show you, yeah. right? Or he's just a really nice guy who's like, oh, bless, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, are you, like, Or is he just taking advantage of poor Mr. Higgins being like, I can sell another clock here. Or that, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it's a call-out fee. <laughs> it's the easiest hour's work of my life. out thinking he might need to like because it's quite difficult to change the time on a grandfather clock isn't it you used to get someone to come out and tune your clock yeah in the olden days so maybe it's like a piano tune and maybe he's like oh call out for you to like retune the clocks nothing wrong with the clocks could be completely routine he's just gone like oh my my grandfather clock needs rewinding he's come around and gone no no that's fine no yeah no but you think it's fine but let me take you up to the attic (laughs) (laughs) now how do we know which of these? It's great. I've just found the picture, by uh, incidentally, of um, him falling over when he sees the grandfather clock is wrong. It's wonderful. Like, he's fully in midair. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's parallel to the floor. Like, <laughs> kicking out behind him like a mule. Yeah. Um, with his perfectly little flat bonds. Yeah, I, I love this book. One of those wonderful things where it's so daft... But if you want it to be, it's kind of like about the nature of time and physics. And like, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of learning um, Mm. that can be gotten out of this book. If you wanted to. Whilst also being so daft. I was looking at reviews, modern reviews of this book. So this book came out in 1970. People saying that it doesn't work because children have an expectation now that you always have the time on you. Because you've always got your phone. Yeah. And so, like, some children were, like, not getting the joke. They're like, well, why doesn't he just pull out his phone? And he'll know. Right. Whether his grandfather Which is the punchline in the end, is yes. that you have a pocket watch, so yes. you're consistent wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I wonder how many kids these... I mean, I don't know. I'm making an assumption here. But I wonder whether kids still get taught to read analog clocks analog time i think they do in school um right but it's sort of like busy work you know it's one of those things they teach you to do that you don't really need to know because i'll tell you the other one you could go with this if you were being really involved the the, you know the one i'm looking at has a label on the front that says math so clearly it's a school copy that's in the math section yeah and it's telling time also like this is literally sort of the diagram that's used to illustrate the fact that time moves slower in lower gravity, right? Yeah. 
like the the physics experiments where they put a clock at the top of a t- tower and a clock at the bottom, and it's like infinitesimally further ahead. I always get it wrong. Times faster nearer the ground. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it would be further ahead nearer the ground. Yeah. But yeah. Do you know what I mean? You could be yeah, like, yeah. and that's how we tell the time. And also, time is relative. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's maybe for the sequel. It's also a classic maths problem that you would set in primary school. If Mr. Higgins looks at his kitchen clock and the clock says 4.10 and then he goes upstairs and it says 4.13 and then he goes to his bedroom and it says 4.14, how long does it take Mr. Higgins to walk from his kitchen to his bedroom if he doesn't go to the attic? Yeah. That's a classic early math problem. It is definitely, it's one of those exam things. I don't know whether this is me just being really daft. Like, as I say, like, I didn't get it straight away, right? right. I feel like for kids, there's a, the, like, it's it's a satisfying one to get. Yeah, it's not obvious to a child that hasn't learned to read the time yet. It's really not. Yeah, exactly. I really like that it doesn't actually explain it and that yeah. Mr. Higgins's initial response, which was buy more clocks, is the correct thing to do at the end. The fact that Mr. Higgins remains ignorant of the real reason by the end of it is lovely. Yeah. He just thinks that his pocket watch is this magical thing. Yeah. (laughs) It makes all his clocks agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's brilliant. Highly recommended. Also, seek out Pat Hutchinson's episodes of Rosie and Jim. Watched a couple this morning. They are delightful. You know who this book would be great for? Who? Is a beleaguered maths teacher you could use this and you get to like teach the time and have a giggle to yourself yeah. at the same time really good learning book really silly joke so should we move on to momo then uh so we're both reading the new translation by j maxwell brown john is that right matt is that what it says in your copy as well let me find out yeah it does Cool. It does. That is, that is the translation I'm reading. So the original translation was titled The Grey Gentleman, so you might come across that as well. And the original German title translates to Momo, or the strange story of the time thieves and the child who brought the stolen time back to the people. That's a bit of a long <laughs> one. I can see why they abridged it. Um, it came out in 1973, and it won the Deutsche Jugendliteraturpreis in 1974. How many times did he practice saying that word? I speak German, Matt. <laughs> Fair enough. Did not know that. Um, so, written by Mikhail Ender. Yeah. Momo is both a celebration of community and friendship and simultaneously a cautionary tale against the modern world's constant pressure for efficiency. Set in an indeterminate Italian town, a young girl moves into an abandoned amphitheatre. She convinces the townspeople to let her live in the ruin, and they subsequently come to treasure her for her ability to listen. Go and see Momo becomes a common phrase amongst the community, and any dispute or problem it seems can be solved by allowing Momo to listen to those involved. She also entertains the children of the area, whose games always carry more imaginative weight when she's around. This communal bliss is gradually interrupted, however, by the invasion of the men in grey. 
suited men with cigars and bowler hats who slip in and out of people's lives, convincing them that they must save more time by terrifying them with the prospect of how much time they've wasted already. Gradually, or perhaps suddenly, it's difficult to tell with how busy everyone is now, the town becomes a city and the whole city becomes increasingly fast-paced. Small side street cafes are replaced by fast food diners. Faceless grey office blocks tower above once cobbled streets now wide and filled with traffic and angry drivers. This might sound familiar. There's a feeling of 1984 dystopia come true about Momo. For sure. Reviewing the book in 2002, philosopher David Loy and literature professor Linda Goodhue suggested that one of the most amazing things about Momo is that it was published in 1973. Since then, the temporal nightmare it depicts has become a reality. Meanwhile, Ender himself has commented that part of the inspiration for the book was his time spent in Italy and the more relaxed approach to life he found there. So as the men in grey take over the city, Momo becomes the only person they can't subvert and it's left to her and a time-travelling tortoise called Cassiopeia to save the world. So... My first question, Nina, to kick us off would be, is this a kid's book? Absolutely. And it is also absolutely a treatise against like hustle culture, rise and grind, capitalism. It's both. It absolutely yeah. works on just the entertainment value as well. Um, hmm. It's very magical. Uh, yeah. It's very entertaining. I mean, it's sort of slow. Sure. Yeah, everything kind of happens in the last 20 pages yeah. to some yeah. extent. It's, it's sort of happening all the way through and it's kind of carrying on all the way through and then everything sort of erupts right at the end. Yeah, um, so I guess in that way it's a little bit dated, but it feels incredibly prescient, doesn't it? Mm, 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 mm. I kind of pretty quickly started to think, cool, yeah, this book's got something about it. I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah. Um. Because of the way Momo is introduced, it sets in that theme of time straight away because it's talking about a world long, long ago where the world was completely different and there were big amphitheatres where people used to meet. And now most of these amphitheatres are sort of ruined and some of them people might go and visit all the time because they're tourist attractions and some others are just kind of there and are kind of growing weeds. And this is one of those. Yeah. Crickets now inhabit their crumbling walls, singing a monotonous song that sounds like the earth breathing in its sleep, which I thought was really lovely. So it's that sense of kind of continuous time and time bleeding into itself. Momo just kind of shows up. I think it's, you know, it's implied that she's escaped from an institution of some kind, you know, a kid's home. The local residents come up and they're sort of saying, you know, we don't mean you any harm. We're not, you know, we just, where are your parents? Who's looking after you? Wouldn't it be better if we called the police? They might yeah. find you somewhere to live. And she's like, oh, no, my God, don't do that. I just escaped from one of those places. Like, could I not just live here? Yeah, I think this whole section might be might be worth reading. Go for it. You're called Mobo, aren't you? Yes. That's a pretty name. But I've never heard it before. Who gave it to you? I did, said Momo. You chose your own name. Yes. When were you born? Momo pondered this. As far as I can remember, she said at length, I've always been around. 
I just love that. I love that. Later on, she she feels like it would help them if she gave them an age. So she says, a hundred? And they sort of say, no, really, come on. She goes, a hundred and two? Like, what's going to work for you here? Um, so there's this... Yeah, we never really find out, like, who or what Momo is. I want to talk a little bit about listening as a superpower. Because it even says, it's not as if Momo is very, very wise. And always gives very good advice. It actually goes to some length to say that there's nothing supernatural about her listening. Was Momo so incredibly bright that she always gave good advice or found the right words to console people in need of consolation? Or delivered fair and far-sighted opinions on their problems? No. She was no more capable of that than anyone else her age. So could she do things that put people in a good mood? Could she sing like a bird or play an instrument? Given that she lived in a kind of circus, could she dance or do acrobatics? No, it wasn't any of these either. Was she a witch then? Did she know some magic spell that would drive away troubles and cares? Could she read a person's palm or foretell the future in some other way? No, what Momo was better at than anyone else was listening. Anyone can listen, you may say. What's so special about that? But you'd be wrong. Very few people know how to listen properly. And Momo's way of listening was quite unique. That's so lovely. So that kind of introduces us to Momo. And there's kind of a core cast of characters, isn't there? There's there's the kids who are always playing around the amphitheatre. And then we have... um, Nino, who runs the cafe... Nino, who runs the cafe, we've got Salvatore, the bricklayer, and then we have um, we have Guido, the guide, and Beppo, Beppo. the road sweeper. Yeah. Who would you like to tell us about, Nina? Uh, I'll talk about Guido. Guido is a young man who shows tourists around. Um, he particularly shows them around the amphitheatre where Momo lives, and hmm. he never tells the same story twice. He has lots of really inventive origin stories for the amphitheatre. There's a really funny one that he tells to this couple of American tourists. And he pitches it just right. Because he's like, oh, you know, you ladies from the land of the free, you'll have an appreciation of this story. And he makes the bad guy called Marxentius Communist. Mm. <laughs> And his whole idea is he wants to remake a new world um, because this old world, his ideas just aren't working out. And so he makes this stand for this new world and that's the amphitheatre. You know, like you would have a stand for a globe or something or a crystal ball. And then he transfers all of the matter of the old world onto the new world. And then there's nothing left of the old world. And so everybody has to jump onto the new world. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that bit. Yeah. And they say, what happened at the end? What happened to that world? And he's like, you're living in it. And then they run away screaming and don't pay him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's got this slice of like sort of surrealist kind of the sort of art which upsets people too much. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, so Guido tells these stories sometimes to the detriment of his income. And everybody's always telling him to get a job. And he's like, no, I'll never get a job. I'll never give up my time for money. You know, like, okay, some days I only have enough money in my pocket for coffee, but, you know, I've got all my time to spend it with my pal Momo. And the best stories come out of Guido when he's sitting talking to Momo 
especially when it's just him and Momo, and he tells special stories for Momo that feature him and her as the heroes, and those are his very special favourites. And her other great friend seems to be the opposite of Guido, and he's a guy called Beppo. Yeah, so Beppo is my favourite character. Guido is a close second. I think why he's my favourite, like, Guido reminds me of me, and Beppo is, like, who I could do with being sometimes. Mm. Beppo Road Sweeper is his name and also his job. So he cleans the streets, but he does it so slowly and deliberately so as to make sure that he's done his job properly. And between mm. each sweep, he'll take a breath so his work is connected to breath. It's so meditative how he works, isn't it? Beppo, at certain points in Japan, might have been considered a Zen master. Yeah. But in this book, is like, you know, to quote, considered not quite right in the head. Yeah. Actually institutionalised because of being mad, yeah. Yeah, and he's the same in conversation. He never, he'll never tell a lie, even if that means waiting till he knows what the true response to give is mm. for as long as it needs. So he'll occasionally like reply to someone's question that they asked hours ago. Yeah. So a conversation with him takes a really long time. And again, everyone's got time to some extent for Bebo, but Momo's the only one who will actually consistently sit and listen for as long as he needs to be listened to to get through what he wants to say. You see, Momo, he told her one day, it's like this. Sometimes when you have a very long street ahead of you, you think how terribly long it is and you feel sure you'll never get it swept. He gazed silently into space before continuing. And then you start to hurry, he went on. You work faster and faster and every time you look up there seems to be just as much left to sweep as before. And you try even harder. And you panic. And in the end you're out of breath and you have to stop. And still the street stretches away in front of you. That's not the way to do it. He pondered a while, then he said, You must never think of the whole street at once, understand? You must only concentrate on the next step, the next breath, the next stroke of the broom, and the next, and the next. Nothing else. He paused for thoughts before adding, that way you enjoy your work, which is important, because then you make a good job of it, and that's how it ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> I, there, there was another long silence, and at last he went on, and all at once, before you know it, you find you've swept the whole street clean, bit by bit. What's more, you aren't out of breath. He nodded to himself. That's important too, he concluded. <laughs> I can totally see why he's your favourite. Love him. He's also important for a plot reason, which is that he is the one who finds the slate for Momo and the chalk, and he teaches her how to read. Which she needs to do, yeah. Which she needs to do later. She needs to read the instructions on the back of the magic tortoise. Which gives you a bit of a bit of an insight into it's like, obviously we're talking about this and sort of, I guess, arguably dry political sort of realism but it does have this strong vein of fantasy as yeah. well yeah um so where does it all start to go wrong where does it disintegrate so we only witness the gray gentlemen making their play for somebody's time once and we see it when mm. they go to this barber um and so this gray gentleman goes into the barber and the barber automatically goes oh um 
haircut or shave, and then he feels very embarrassed because the grey gentleman is bald, so obviously he doesn't want a haircut. And the grey gentleman says, oh, neither. I've come to talk to you about something. We're the time-saving bank, and you have so much capital. You've got so much going for you. Like, how many, how many years have you been alive? Okay, let's figure You've got whatever it is, like 26 billion seconds. Ah, now, hang on, wait, though. Let's calculate how much of that you've actually got left. And then it starts <laughs> going into... Yeah, so it does the sleep, and then uh, what else the does work, it do? The eating, the talking to his mother, the going to the cinema, the looking out the yeah. window... The drinking with yeah. friends, the bringing a flower to his girlfriend. Not even his girlfriend, just someone he quite likes. This is a bit that I don't like. This is a little, like, I think it is his girlfriend, but he refuses to marry her because she's disabled. Oh, right. I didn't pick up on that. Um, no, that's not so cool. He's in love with her and he goes and visits her mm. every day with a flower and talks to her. But he could never marry her because yeah. she's in a wheelchair. Well, I guess also if we go back to Beppo, I mean, like we've talked before about this sort of tiny Tim, like the the disabled prophet. Mm, yeah. Beppo's got a bit of that going oh, on, yeah. right? Like, if This is an older book, and we often find this in older books, and this is not to say don't read this book. It's just like a couple of... No. There are some yikes moments in it. Um, yeah, so he goes to the barber and he like subtracts all this time from him for everything that he considers to be time-wasting, and that includes eating and sleeping. And talking to his mother. He says, yeah. put your mother in a home and save loads of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he like yeah. basically like puts the fear of the void into the barber. But all of the calculations obviously inevitably add up to the amount of seconds he had originally. So the sum total is zero. Yeah. And the guy's going like, oh my God, I had like 26 billion. Yeah. And like now I've got nothing. And he's like, yeah, but it's not too late. Why not start now? Well, the barber says, how do I save time? He's like, you know how to save time. Don't chat when you're cutting people's hair. Just cut the hair and like move on. Don't give them 30 yeah. minutes. Give them 15 minutes. You know how to do it. And he's like, well, how will I pay the time in? He's like, oh, don't worry about that. We take care of all that. We just suck it out of you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and we even pay interest. If you leave it in long enough, you'll get more time out than you put in. Isn't that a good deal? And the barber's like, okay, uh, where's the contract? <laughs> The grey gentleman's like, ah, oh, time-saving. Time-saving requires trust. We have trust in you. You have trust in us. We have no need for a contract. He walks out, yeah. and the barber immediately forgets the grey gentleman because the grey gentleman is so forgettable that he doesn't forget his resolution to save time. And so he does what he said. He spends less time on his customers. He doesn't know why. He just has this great need to save time. And so he starts hurrying and rushing yeah. things. And he had enjoyed his job before. He quite liked a little chat while he cut someone's hair. He's very good at chatting and cutting someone's hair. But suddenly he gives really quick haircuts and he doesn't go and see his girlfriend anymore. And he puts his mother in a home, blah, 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 blah. And this happens to every adult in the city. They all get this visit that they don't remember, but it fills them with this inchoate sense of urgency which I don't know where it comes from. And the more time they save, the less time they seem to have. Yeah. And that's when we start to find that their children are being completely neglected. Yeah. yeah. And so their children start showing up at Momo's with their whizzy gadget toys that their parents have bought them, basically to make up for not spending any time with them. And their kids who don't know how to play... And they don't know mm. how to play because they're used to being entertained. 
and they don't know the difference between being entertained and playing, and they don't know how to make up their own stories, and they have a need to wreck the game of the kids that already went there when they arrive. There's a lot of disrupting of each other's playing and each other's games. Yeah. It seems to come out of like a sense of frustration that they don't know how to do that. Um, yeah. So they're having this conflict about the boombox because this kid's playing it so loud that like everyone else can't even hear themselves play or talk. So the other kid's like, ah, turn it down. And he's like, I don't have to. And I think it's Beppo says, no, he doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. We can only ask him. So they ask him, will you turn it down? And he's like, no. So Momo goes and sits next to him. Eventually he turns off his radio and starts talking to her. And it turns out his parents have given him this radio to keep him company because they don't have time to play with him anymore and to talk to him anymore and they don't want him to be lonely. They've given Mm -hmm. him this radio and the other kid's like, oh yeah, same at my house. Our parents don't love us anymore. And that's the thing that stings him into action. He's like, no, of course they do. This radio is really expensive. That must mean that they love me, right? And then he bursts into tears. And then somehow the game is able to resume. It's incredible that it's from the 70s because it feels like those bits are about giving children iPads a little bit. Yeah, it's so prescient. Yeah. It's so prescient. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point. The, The essay that I quoted in the intro it's this incredible essay kind of linking momo to zen buddhism because mikhail Endo was very into zen mm. buddhism and and um, but yeah that you know that that was the the point they were making was that like it's incredible that this yeah. was written in 1973 have you heard the saying passive toys make active children and active toys make passive children Right, yeah, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's that, yeah. and it's some, it's something now that people say about like handing your toddler a phone or something, you know, yeah. is that these, and I, I don't want to like make a really judgmental point about that. Like, I know that we live in the world we live in, and I'm not judging anyone for handing over a phone because they need five minutes mm. break in a pandemic winter. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. But that like toys that do something tend to result especially in very young children in children sitting still and watching the toy do the thing Mm. whereas toys that don't do anything like a toy car or a doll or a rattle tend to result in children interacting with the toy in a way that is moving their body yeah and where there's more imaginative space yeah yeah so someone leaves momo a doll and the doll is one of those speaking dolls which in the 70s must have been really new She's got like three pre-recorded things that she says. She says, Hello, I'm Lola, the living doll. And then she says, I belong to you. All the other kids envy you because I'm yours. And then she says, I'd like some nice new things. And then she loops and she goes, Hello, I'm Lola, the living doll. It's really creepy. And Momo's Mm. trying to work out a way to play with her. So she's tried Mm. offering her her things, but the doll doesn't seem to want her things. Her nice pebble and her nice feather. And so then they tried to play pretend. Momo tried several games in turn, but nothing came of them. If only the doll had remained silent, she could have supplied the answers herself and held an interesting conversation with it. As it was, the very fact it could talk made conversation impossible. Before long, Momo was overcome by a sensation entirely new to her, but took quite a while to recognise it as plain boredom. Although her inclination was to abandon Lola the living doll and play some other game, 
She couldn't for some reason tear herself away. So there she sat, gazing at the doll, and the doll, with its glassy blue eyes fixed on hers, gazed back. It was as if they had hypnotised each other. I love that bit. So the men in grey are the ones who gave Mama this doll, and they show up to try and show her how to use it. And how you use it is you buy lots of accessories for her. You can get camper van for her, you can get body lotion for her, lots and lots of different outfits. She's sort of a bit like a Barbie, I guess, except that she talks. So he's giving her all this bluster and he's telling her, we need you to play with this toy so that you won't have time for your friends anymore because you're wasting their time. And she's like, but I love my friends. And he's like, do you? Because if you love them, you would leave them alone. You're always distracting them from what really matters. So you just stay here and play with this doll and, you know, stop interfering with our interests. And she goes, doesn't anybody love you? To the grey gentleman. Mm. And it breaks him. And he suddenly... (laughs) (laughs) There's a big villain explain to her where he explains who the grey gentlemen are and that they live on time, and that they're sucking it out of everyone, and that they must be anonymous, and nobody must know about them. And he's like, oh no. And then the doll and like all of her equipment like flies back into the boot of his car like a reverse explosion, and he drives away in a terrible panic because he's accidentally told the Grey Gentleman's master plan to Momo. So, I mean, did you enjoy reading this book? Yes. Loved it. Is there a point where you sort of fell in love with it? The doll. Right. It was the doll for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to talk about the make-believe chapter. Sure. So the make-believe chapter is really early in the book. It's chapter three. And it's a whole chapter that just describes a game between Momo and her friends and that shows the way that Momo spurs on the other children's imagination. Yeah, just by being there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... And interestingly, it's written entirely as if what's happening in the game is real. They're on some sort of exploration on a ship, and they're in a storm because it's actually raining, and they encounter this tornado. Well, it's the, there's a massive jellyfish causing the tornado, isn't yeah. there? Um, called a... Uh, teetotum. Yeah, a teetotum elasticum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the children, in character, are having this conversation about whether or not to kill the teetotum elasticum or to perish in the tornado that it's creating. And so far, Momo has not taken active part in the story. So they're, they're having a conversation about it. Any suggestions, Professor? The captain asked, but Professor Einstein merely shrugged. His assistants were equally devoid of ideas. It looked as if the expedition would have to be abandoned as a failure. Just then, someone tugged at the professor's sleeve. It was Momo-san, the beautiful native girl. And then Momo goes on to speak to the captain in what we think is probably made-up language. Mm-hmm. So I've done a bit of a Google of this, and yeah. the first sentence she says is, uh, Malumba oisitu sono. I don't know the you know pronunciation, yeah. but that came up on Google Translate as Swahili for this island is now. Um, so whether that's intentionally like throwing a bit of Swahili in there or if it's just completely accidental and it shows up on kind of forums of like beloved made up languages, I think is either deliberately robbing from lots of different places. You know, Benny Benny feels Italian. Yeah. Sadagao is very similar to a Turkish word. So yeah. either it's a deliberate attempt to 
mash loads of languages together or Which it's is just a problem in and of itself <laughs> sure yeah yeah um so this passage really tripped me up like i really didn't like that moment and it continues sure. throughout the chapter and every time momo-san is mentioned it's momo-san the beautiful native girl yeah every single time isn't it it's that exoticization <sighs> yeah. like um it's always the beautiful native yeah. girl yeah well, and the role that she plays as Momo-san is a sort of magical native person with special knowledge about nature and animals because she is able to suggest a third way. We don't have to kill it and we don't have to perish. We could just sing it this special native song. Um, which will just send it to sleep, which is the secret of my people. But it's still, you know, she's the hero of that chapter. If we're giving him a bit of slack, like in 1973, yeah. that was possibly intended, like, with, like, it feels like it's good intentions. It, do you know what I mean? It feels like. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> he's trying to portray something positive in Momo and say something positive about Momo. Yeah. And also it's really racist to use somebody else's racialized identity as a metaphor as a white person. It feels like their kind of make-believe and feels true to what those kids might be making up as yeah, make-believe. it's but... completely believable as like a game that they would play and things that kids would make up as well. Yeah, yeah. We have another little um, environmental bit in that as well, is the, the yeah. massive jellyfish that they have to kill one of the lads at the end. says, so it's a shame we had to wipe out the last of that species of <laughs> teetotum elasticum. It feels like all those progressive messages dotted throughout very yeah. deliberately, like, everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just maybe this one, it's it's not dated particularly well. It's an interesting chapter. Um, it is a bit I would give a warning about if you're going to read it. It's, very, it's a very lonely book. The way that the great gentleman decides to manipulate Momo because she's got all the time in the world and she loves to spend it on her friends. Like, they're not going to capture her, they're not going to put her in prison, they're not going to actually do anything to her. They're just going to remove all her friends by making them unavailable and taking all their time so that she's so lonely that she can't bear it. Yeah, that's brutal. That that is their weapon. They're just going to make her really lonely. And she does. She spends ages in this book in the middle being really, really lonely. It's really well-constructed and deliberately constructed, but I don't think it does, but it maybe edges towards getting lost up itself. A little bit preachy? Not preachy, no. I wouldn't say preachy, just kind of um, maybe a little too into its own cleverness. Mm. Yeah, I sort of know what you Um, mean. Yeah. It is very clever, and it also is very into being very clever. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there is also, to counteract that, I did find a lovely quote from Mikhail Ender about Kidlit and how it's perceived by the literary world, mm-hmm. which I thought for our podcast sort of fits our mission statement, I guess. So it was 1985 you wrote this in response to criticism of just writing escapism, which I don't think is fair at all. No. He says... Um, One may enter the literary parlour via just about any door, be it the prison door, the madhouse door, or the brothel door. 
There is but one door one may not enter it through, which is the nursery door. The critics will never forgive you such. I mean, he does then say the great Rudyard Kipling, which, you know, fine, whatever, <laughs> is, uh, is one to have suffered this. I keep wondering to myself what this peculiar contempt towards anything related to childhood is, a, is all about. Because that's a, such a strong theme in this as well, isn't it? It's ch- like the men in grey literally say, like, we'd have taken over the whole world decades ago were it, it not for, for children. children. Yeah. Like, it's so much harder to force children into abandoning play. Yeah. You're right, that is a really strong thing about this book, is that you've got a huge respect for childhood and a huge yeah. respect for play. Uh, scariometer. Four. Something like that. Yeah. Four or five. Scary in that it's a vision of the future that we're already living in. And the actual men in grey, some of the sort of like chase scenes, have a threat to them. But in terms of actually what's happening to the characters in the book, there isn't anything kind of immediately graphically or pressingly threatening. No. There's no gore. There's no no explicit violence. It's cruel rather than violent, I would say. Yeah. Um, it's like gutting. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> yeah. Like the, when they make that threat that we're just going to take away all your friends and you will have yeah. no one to spend your time with. That's really cruel and really sad. But it's not like, I don't know, we're going to pull your toes off, you know? I think what I do love in this, you know, we were talking last time about, well, I was talking about Timo Parvella maybe pulling his punches a little mm-hmm. too much with it being kid, like this doesn't. No. This has got such trust in children to be like, yeah. you can handle this. Who's it for for you? Nerdy little fantasy fans. Yeah. It's for the same people that Not Now Bernard is for. It's a cautionary tale. Yeah. <laughs> it's as much an adult book as it is a, a kid's book, I think. Yeah. What reading age would you say? Like, how old? Eight or nine. I'd go a bit older. I'd go nine, ten. Especially because there's no pictures inside. Uh, you've got to have a little bit of stamina. For this one. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thank you so much, Fiona, for your lovely email. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And thank you for suggesting the theme of time, which we did go with. Um, We hope you liked it. Everyone else, be like Fiona. Request your favourite kids' books. Um, And yeah, that was episode 27 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchable at gmail.com. Catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchablePod, and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchable. trunchable.